Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Piet Coleman and Travis Doe. Good evening from Prague and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy Podcast. The mid-19th century saw many twists and turns in continental Europe. Growing nationalism began to redraw battle lines, allegiances, and territories. The powers and rulers of the day were looking to either expand their influence or hold tight to established lines of control. The emerging unified Prussians needed to establish themselves on the European stage with a clash against the omnipresent Austrian Empire. The battlefield would be in central Bohemia, and by the end of the battle, thousands lay dead with their new Prussian-German nation on the cusp of newly found power. On July 3, 1866, the area around Sadova became the scene of the Battle of Koniggratz, also known as the Battle of Sadova, the decisive combat of the Austro-Prussian War. Travis, this war had many names and much depended upon who was naming it. Austro-Prussian War, like you said, also known as the Seven Weeks War, in Germany, known as the German War or Unification War or the Prussian-German War, German Civil War, Fraternal War, because they're brothers. A lot of names. <laughs> yeah, but in any case, it was a war fought in 1866 between the German Confederation under the leadership of the Austrian Empire and its German allies on one side and the Kingdom of Prussia with its German allies in Italy on the other. This resulted in Prussian dominance over the German states. In the Italian unification process, this is called the Third Independence War. The major result of the war was a shift in power among the German states away from Austrian and towards the Prussians, and the unification of the northern German states in a Kleindeutschland that excluded Austria, uh, which it means small Germany because there was the, the Kleindeutschland Lösung, like the small German solution and the large German solution. So it's, it saw the abolition of the German Confederation and its partial replacement by a North German Confederation that, again, it excluded Austria and, and at that point also the South German states. Okay, so a lot was going on here, Travis. And what, why this fits into the Bohemian podcast tonight was because the final culmination of all this actually happened in a town called Klum on the Sadova River uh, in central, central Bohemia, central part of the Czech Republic today. And that's where Travis and I actually went out to, to see a reenactment on the anniversary of this 1866 battle. Uh, the reenactment didn't quite answer these broader questions, but it did give us a very colorful, action-filled glimpse in this defining battle of the war at Klum. Pretty interesting to see the battle site and kind of the lay of the land. So there was a, there was a nice hill that we could, you know, we kind of sat and could watch the reenactment in the kind of valley below us. They had massive explosions. 
like really the big pyrotechnics, pyrotechnics were amazing you right you could feel the the yeah you could yeah. feel the concussion blasts and uh, you can see some some of them were so far away you could see them well well ahead of you know actually hearing them um yeah it's, it's kind of interesting if you if you look at a map of of where we where we were um which is a little bit east of Prague here and it's kind of interesting that you know this was a war that didn't really involve Czechs per se, but you know, Czech Republic was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But at that time, before World War One, Prussia was north of here and Austria was south of here. It's just kind of a bad place to be, I guess. But the, the Czechs were caught in the middle of all this. Yeah, so all the all the main battles were fought on kind of Bohemian soil. But it, it's a kind of a neat site because they they have a, a brand new museum. The museum's been there for over a decade, but it had a facelift about three years ago. Yeah, okay. And, and so it, it had a, a lot of uh, things that they found on the battlefield there. They had a, a model of, of the reenactment of one of the battles that led up to Kloom, of course. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the, the military garb that you would see, which was actually, you know, very, uh, very colorful for the time. I mean, it, it was really kind of a throwback to the Napoleonic uh, days of uniforms and cavalry charges, and so it really helped to kind of give you an idea leading up to the reenactment about what this this territory meant. You'll drive around this area that's in the, the Hradosh Kralova region of the Czech Republic, and you'll see monument after monument. This was a, a battlefield that extended to several towns throughout mm-hmm. this region, and it just culminated in this big battle of Klum that really kind of saw the, the Prussians take, take, the, take the war. We actually did some audio there. We actually talked about it while we were at the uh, at the reenactment. So let's go. Let's go to that. So in the end, the Prussians took the field, and Hindenburg was standing victorious with the Austrian flag here in the reenactment. I don't know if that's historically accurate, but it is important to note that it is. Yes, it is that Hindenburg. So that guy is apparently 227 years old because he's like a what a general in World War One. And then he's the guy in the 1930s to name uh, Hitler chancellor. So this is like 1866, and Hindenburg's in, in battles and stuff. Same guy, vampire. Yeah, Travis. I think this is uh, was the focal point of today's uh, particular anniversary uh, reenactment was going to put a focus on Hindenburg and his his uh, rise and uh, rise to power. Basically, uh, he came back and became a, uh, uh, a you know a star within the Prussian sphere of influence and and uh, was, did not leave that world stage uh, until late in life. Um, so in this reenactment, we kind of saw him all bloodied up and uh, victorious uh, and uh, in the middle of the battlefield. At times, though, Travis, it looked as if that the Austrians had a counterattack that was going to take the field. However, they were pushed back, and eventually cannons were taken over by the Prussians. Yeah, I mean, the, the Austrians definitely had the majority, but Prussians just had them totally outgunned. So, yeah. So there was a lot, there was a huge loss of life that I think would be on par with what we would see maybe in the American Civil War. Maybe not quite Antietam or quite Gettysburg, but definitely was, along those lines. Um, if I remember the numbers, it was like three to one. So Austrians had like 30,000 dead and the Prussians had like nine, or, you know, dead, missing, and, and, and uh, injured. Well, and Travis, I, I think that, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge uh, historical fan of the American Civil War. I, you know, I grew up in Virginia, and basically our backyard was, you know, Manassas or Bull Run, as it, as it would be known, or, you know, further down the road was Peter, Petersburg or Fredericksburg. Gettysburg wasn't too far away in Pennsylvania. Um, so I, I, I constantly grew up around these huge engagements. And, you know, you would see this stuff and, and hear these sheer numbers of, of, of these engagements, like in Antietam in Maryland. 
uh, near Sharpsburg, uh, you know, and you just can't believe thousands of men were engaged in, in such a small area of a town of, of Antietam. Uh, but you saw this, and this is the same era, 1866, we're talking about this. The United States uh, was trying to come back together as a union in 1866. Uh, there was a mess of stuff going on here in Central Europe with uh, how big Germany was going to get and if Austria, Austria the empire, was going to actually be on a down, downward spiral after this. Uh, we saw a lot of movement in that, but at this time, you see that there were so many uh, people engaged in this. It was kind of eye-opening for me. I knew of the Austro-Prussian conflict, but I really didn't know the details of it. Attending this reenactment really helped to kind of to better understand uh, what this war meant to both sides, in many respects, what led to later on the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. So, Travis, look, at, let's maybe get a better idea of of what this Austro-Prussian War was like. There was a lot of, of really well-known figures that were involved in this. Otto von Bismarck, uh, Hindenburg, uh, just to name a few, really kind of played a part in, in the lead-up to this war and the war itself. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the interpretations that, that kind of go into this. Well, first of all, I'd just like to state that um, Hindenburg is clearly a vampire of some sort <laughs> for him to be, because he, he was in this war and then... As a very young man. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. As a young man, <laughs> okay. sure. Whatever you say. So 1866, but, Hindenburg was there. But this, right. is, and then like, what, 70 years later, he's still around to make uh, Hitler the, the chancellor. Yeah, you know? it's amazing. He, the, the amount of things that he had seen is, is historically yeah. amazing. So he saw this war, he lived through World War I and passed away right before World War II. There, you know, there's been a lot of, of writings and, and interpretations and, and opinions of Otto von Bismarck's behavior prior to the Austro-Prussian War, which concentrate mainly on whether the Iron Chancellor, as he was known, had a kind of master plan that resulted in this war, the North German Confederation and the unification of Germany. Bismarck maintained that he orchestrated the conflict in order to bring about the North German Confederation. And then also the Franco-Prussian War and the eventual unification of Germany. So this was like one big kind of chess move, you know. That I, I can definitely see that. To me, there's no question here. Bismarck's fingerprints are all over this. Uh, Bismarck was, was a genius when it came to uh, pushing the right buttons. Politically, his political maneuvering was un unparalleled uh, during this time. Uh, as well as his military sort of viewpoint on things. And you'll see that as, this, as the 19th century comes to a close, at the dawn of the 20th century, he's still pushing the right buttons until basically he ages out and uh, uh, he's kind of usurped in that sense. But this is definitely something that he wanted because there's no way the Confederation, the German Confederation, can, can grow as nationalism starts to kind of take a hold here in Europe without flexing your military muscle. And he saw that, that this was going to happen against the Austrians. And so, so Travis, we're looking at the sheer numbers here of this of this battle going into this, and the Austrian army uh, that was comprised of two hundred and forty thousand faced the Prussian army of the Elbe, which was thirty nine thousand, and the first army, which was eighty five thousand, on this July third, eighteen sixty six date. The Austrian infantry was uh, partially fortified by the supporting of the cavalry at the rear and the artillery units with firing range across a hilly wooden terrain. And Travis, we saw this on the diagram on the diorama that was in the, the mm -hmm. museum, and we can you can kind of still see it today in the farmlands uh, of the central Bohemian area that there was these groves of trees, these many little forests that were used yeah. as as uh, tactical um, uh, uh, impairments that that your sharpshooters could use. Some sort of cover. Some sort of cover, cover because yeah. you were basically open in these farm areas for anybody to hit you. It is interesting. So, I mean, you just mentioned the numbers. It's, it's almost two to one. 
you know, with the Austrians' advantage. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why the Prussians actually won here in a minute. But coming into this, the Prussians just assumed that this was going to be a, you know, decisive victory because it's two to one, right? Well, the, the battle began at dawn in subsiding rain and missed as Prussia took its position west of the river shortly before 8 a.m. The Austrian artillery opened fire, pinning down the Prussian right flank. At first, the Saxons and the Austrian left fell back and proceeded to pour down fire on the advancing Prussians from higher ground. Hevat von Bittenfeld hesitated to order a full attack, and instead the advance guard of seven battalions under Brigadier General von Schola pulled back to the river early in the attack and took a defensive stance. With the Prussian 7th Division under General Eduard Friedrich Karl von Franceschi, having secured the Prussian rear earlier, led the advance into Sweep Forest, where it was met by two Austrian corps. The 7th Division had to both clear out the forest and cover the Prussian left until the 2nd Army, under the Crown Prince, arrived. The Prussians methodically cleared the villages of Austrian defenders. Now, this, this must have been very, very difficult because you're going... It's not easy in the 21st century to go to go door to door when you're in occupying force and, and try to quell insurrections. Could you imagine what this was like at the time uh, to be able to quell this and also watch out for the for the tree line to see if you can clear out the folks that were trying to establish a clear line of fire against you at that point as well? King uh, Wilhelm I of Prussia ordered the first army across the river to support uh, Franceschi. Uh, Sadowa was captured, the little town there, but a fierce battle ensued in the nearby forest. The Austrian artillery held off the Prussians by firing into the smoke of the Prussian advance. Something, Travis, we saw in a little bit with this reenactment, a lot of smoke. Now, some of this was set, set fire on purpose, just like the reenactment when they said, yeah. uh, I think it was some kind of um, carriage of some sort with hay on it. They set that afire first. That was one of the first things that they did. Yeah. Um, and that caused a little bit of confusion uh, and line of sight issues. The Prussians were slowed, and although the river was easy to wade through, transporting artillery across it was extremely difficult. The Prussians' attack was, was halted as the advancing Prussian 8th and 4th Divisions were cut down by the Austrian artillery as soon as they emerged from the smoke. However, the Austrian leader, Bindek, uh, refused to call for a cavalry charge, which later commentators have argued may have, have won the battle for them. Reserve units were deployed at noon, but the outcome of the battle was still uncertain as the Prussian commanders anxiously awaited for the crown prince. Yeah, again, they outnumbered the Prussians two to one, but there was something that people just were not taking into account, and that is that the Prussians actually had the Austrians outgunned. And this is something that we kind of see at the end of the American Civil War, that when the Union Army started getting these uh, breech-loading rifles, models where you could load up to five bullets in, and the South, and in this case also the Austrians, still had muzzle-loading you know, rifles or muskets, basically. And this is something that I, I think the Austrians knew that, but they just way underestimated the type of advantage that that could give. The Prussian weapons had a lot longer range because they were actual rifles and not muskets. The Prussians had attempted to bring three armies together for the battle, but problems with sending orders by telegraph and moving men by railroad had meant that only two of the three armies have arrived in time. So that's why they were so outnumbered. But the Prussian center in the cover of the forest was able to hold its position and discourage a mounted charge by the Austrians who were thought to have superior cavalry. So this was, you know, if you're in the woods, then you kind of negate that, that cavalry 
uh, advantage. One thing that's that's hard to overestimate and that the Austrians really didn't think about is that, okay, so first of all, the Prussians can shoot much faster. Uh, I think the Austrians could shoot like three times a minute or something, whereas the Prussians could just, you know, shoot as fast as they can pull the trigger and, you know, cock the bolt and, you know, reload that way. But even bigger still is the fact that the Austrians had to stand up to reload their mu their muzzle-loading rifles, whereas the Prussians could stay down, you know, either like laying down or kneeling, uh, you know, while they could just reload their guns. So this is just something that wasn't even in Austrians' training. I mean, they just didn't think about this at all. Well, you know, we saw this a little bit, too, in American history at the Battle of Little Bighorn 10 years after this in, in 1876 um, in, in Montana, where um, Custer and the 7th Cavalry uh, were, were separated from, from Benteen and uh, Reno, I believe. You had the, the Sioux that were coming up over the horizon were actually huge in outnumbering them. But what made the difference, as archaeologists are figuring this out now, is that the 7th Cavalry had inadequate rifles that took them much longer to load, and they were getting off maybe, maybe five or six shots every 30 seconds. So we can see the difference, even within 10 years of this 1866 battle, that, you know, technology, you, you needed to have that. And, and actually, the Prussians, with this needle gun, had the advantage. Yeah, I mean, this is the time period in history where... Um, things change, things start to change very quickly. I mean, they already mentioned railroads and, and telegraphs and stuff, but um, still, for a century or two or three before this, you basically had muzzle-loading rifles, and so your strategy didn't change very much. And now suddenly, within a decade, you started to have, like, huge advantages. And, and even then, you know, the, the pace of change only picked up. What really amazes me is looking at that documentary in the museum really kind of put it into, into perspective that communication was a real problem. All the players involved here, from the Austrian players to the, to the Prussian players, they did not know the battle was engaged. They were working feverishly behind the scenes to see if they can, they can get some sort of peace and some kind of peace offering between both, but nothing could come as fast, and they did not have the proper information on the logistics that the army had engaged till three days later. And they were asking, was there a battle? That actually yeah. is, they were actually saying, was there a battle? That's like of the course there was a battle, and it's over, and you famously, lost. Famously, that's what the emperor asked. That's what, yeah, like, the emperor asked that, and, and before, the, before the Austrians even knew that they, they lost this battle, and they lost the war. And so, you know, even with the telegraph, the information was not really uh, as fast as they needed it to be, especially if the telegraph lines were down. Again, referring back to the American Civil War in the 1860s, that was one of the chief things that you did. If you had control over your transportation with your railroad and you also had communication um, control by having better tele telegraph lines up and be able to keep those telegraph lines up and not get them cut, you could actually get information to and from the battlefield quite quickly. And if you remember, a lot of people, a lot of Americans will know this, that Abraham Lincoln was sitting in the, in the, uh, in the White House and receiving up-to-date situations by, the, by Morse code, by the telegraph, about what was happening in these battlefields. That was the first time that was ever done by an American president. So all this stuff is somewhat in its infancy, and uh, it just wasn't utilized quite well during this, this, uh, uh, this war between the, the Austrian Empire as, as well as the, uh, the Prussians. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Travis, looking at the first-hand account, there's, there's many sort of first-hand accounts. I, I found a couple online that I thought were very interesting, um, and this is just from, from one particular Prussian that was on the field, uh, and I'll quote this. 
In the great battle which had occurred, the artillery fire on our side was sufficient to cause great loss in the, to the enemy, and even to give the Austrian army the advantage for some time. But when it came close to quarters, the breech-loading small arms prevailed over courage, strength, and the obstinate adherence to old principles of war. Again, Travis, is exactly what you're saying. The technology, the weaponry, had kind of surpassed those old you know, tried-and-true methods of yeah. hand-to-hand combat, that kind of chivalry sort of idea of rushing into the battle, you know, of uh, soldiers and cavalry trying to win the day. It didn't mean a whole lot if you had someone with a needle gun trained on you and uh, taking you out one by one. You're fix- You're sitting there fixing your bayonet. And- it's over. Uh-uh. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. You can't get it in time. Compounding the Austrians' losses was the Austrians' early refusal to sign the First Geneva Convention. As a result, the Austrian medical personnel were regarded as combatants and withdrew from the field with the main bulk of the forces leaving the wounded to die on the field. All right, so that, that'll learn them. You know, and we did we did get to see, you know, against kind of what happened here, um, the Battle of Klum reenactment that we saw a few weeks ago, Travis, we did get to see yeah. people with stretchers and mm-hmm. medical personnel. And we also got to see um, the Red Cross flag, which which I don't know if, if the timing does match. If you if you do look back on it, the the American Red Cross, Clara Barton led the way during the American Civil War. So is it possible that possibly there was a Red Cross division here in the Battle of Klum in 1866? Yeah, I guess it's possible. But according to this uh, information, the medical personnel just withdrew, withdrew from this because of the Geneva Convention was not signed, and the medical personnel were yeah, considered they, combatants. They could have gotten shot at, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are those are... Huge losses, and is it the biggest? 31,000. 31,000 killed, Austrians killed. I mean, is that, that is the huge. In the 19th century? It, it, this, it was, this was the biggest engagement of the 19th century. You can still see a bunch of, there's, there's a pillar erected as a, as a memorial, and um, it was erected by Austrians, and, and you know, so it's kind of to the fallen Austrian heroes. Is it the Angel of Austria is atop of this pillar, right? Yeah, Lady Austria, Lady Austria, yeah. right. And there's a bunch of mass graves, kind of, where um, it would say, like, there's 300 Prussians here, or 200 Austrians there. And we saw a couple of those just kind of dotting the landscape. And that, that was really interesting. But anyways, after this Prussian victory, the Königgrätzer March was written to commemorate the battle. The French public resented the Prussian victory and demanded revenge pour Sadova, or revenge for Sadova, which formed part of the build-up to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. So you can see in, in all German glory <laughs> that they're, they're, they're in here and they're making songs and marches, uh, military uh, you know, uh, extravaganzas to, to, to talk about what they, what they did in this battle and what they did in, the, in this, this Austro-Prussian War. And you can see that this nationalism was just building. And the architect of this was was uh, Otto von Bismarck, mm-hmm. and and everything was kind of falling into place, and he, and you know the French said, okay, you know, are we next? And of course they were in 1870. You know, to sum up this military engagement and and these after effects of this Austro-Prussian War, the delay in the delivery of communications uh, of the day allowed for major this major battle to take place, whereas there was a chance maybe to avoid such loss of life and material if the information was was given uh, a little bit quicker. I, however, still think that Bismarck would have wanted this to be a, a decisive victory someplace for the Prussians. He would, if he wasn't finding it here at Klum, he would have found it someplace else, I'm sure. Uh, the parties involved were trying to hammer out these agreements yet, and it was just too little too late as the wheels were already in motion. 
as these two armies clashed in central Bohemia. The Austrians re really saw their empire start to fade away at this moment, I think, Travis. I, I think that this was one of the death kneels that, uh, that was, was in its coffin because uh, Austria never really was quite the same again. And we would see in another generation in World War I that it would be the coup de grace that would be finished after, after 1918. This was a very big moment in European history that kind of gets overlooked. Uh, other than the sheer loss of, of men and, and material that were in this battle, I, I think that it gets overlooked that this was a seminal moment in uh, European relations and the, basically the, the coming together of this German state that, that we would see uh, cause a lot of problems in the 20th century. It was a much bigger battle than any Franco-Prussian battle was, but again, it kind of gets overlooked because then there was the North German Confederation, but the Franco-Prussian War is the one that gave us the borders of Germany that we were used to in, until like the end of World War I or even the end of World War II. Um, so, you know, that was kind of the big German empire that, you know, so it, it kind of dwarfed the political impact a little bit, but it's hard to really underemphasize how important this whole war was. This was a very big, important part midway through the, through the 19th century. We hope that you uh, learned a little bit tonight about this engagement that was is somewhat cloudy for a lot of people. We want to thank you for listening to the Bohemican Podcast. Please visit our website, bohemican.com, for more on the Czech Republic and her people. If you have time, please feel free to leave comments on iTunes about the podcast. We really appreciate that, and we look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman saying goodnight from Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com. Or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemican Podcast, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.